Thank you, Brother Kurt. I'd like to begin by telling a true story that happened a little over 200 years ago. The story is about a man that you may have heard of. His name is Adoniram Judson. He was born in Massachusetts in the year 1788, and very early on, his mental aptitude was was found to be very high. He was very brilliant, and even when he was a small child, six, seven, eight years old, they found that he could solve these puzzles and these brain twisters that even adults couldn't solve. And so people started giving him more and more puzzles, and his fame started to spread as a, a very bright young man. He then turned uh, to languages, and they found that he was very brilliant with languages. They called him Little Virgil because he was so good with Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Judson's father was a minister in Massachusetts who was famous for being a hard-line, no-compromise man. This was in a day that the church was shifting quite a bit and accepting all kinds of new ideas, but Judson's father held his ground despite the consequences. He had to go from church to church because of, of his convictions. This made a a very deep impression on young Adoniram. Judson eventually went to Brown University, which is an Ivy League school that is in Providence, Rhode Island. There he met some other students who, like him, were very brilliant. But these students, however, were quite worldly, and they led him away from the Lord. He ended up becoming a deist. He decided to discard his belief in the word of God. And the ringleader of this group that he was in, his name was Jacob Ames. Ames was a very capable spokesman himself. Judson continued in his academic accomplishments, and he graduated as the valedictorian, the top position of Brown. He eventually broke the news to his family that he no longer believed in the God of the Bible. I told you that his father was a minister. You can imagine how heartbroken he was. This is how one biography recounts the the telling. Furiously, Adoniram flung out the truth. His father and mother froze with horror as Adoniram's words struck their startled ears. The God of the Third Church of Plymouth was not his God, Adoniram told them. He could not believe that the Bible was anything but the work of men, any more than were the Quran or the sacred writings of Buddha. Great as his principles might be, even Jesus He was certainly the son of man, but almost as certainly not the son of God, except in the sense that all men are. Mr. Judson, the father, was outraged. What had got into the boy? He had felt for sure that at Brown, of all places, no harm would be done to his son's souls. Surely these dangerous teachings did not come from any of the faculty. They must have been picked up from some fellow student infected with the dangerous teachings blowing over from France these years. If so, a few solid arguments should set the boy right. Swallowing his anger, Mr. Judson set himself to reason with Adoniram. Very shortly, he realized with dismay that every argument he advanced was being met by two better ones. Not for nothing had Adoniram been valedictorian of his class. Exposing the fallacies in his father's syllogism was child's play. Point by point, with crushing finality, he demolished every thesis his father set out to prove. By nightfall, Adoniram was completely master of the field. So far as logic and evidence went, Mr. Judson Judson had to concede that Adoniram had everything in his favor. Mr. Judson was beaten. He still knew he was right, but he could not prove it. He lapsed into grim, impotent silence. 
Adoniram might have gone to bed flushed with triumph had his mother not possessed other, more deadly weapons. Tears and prayers. Many of us would attest to the prayers of our mothers. Adoniram felt those, those daggers of the tears, but despite that, he decided to go to New York, where he wanted to pursue the life of theater and high society. Eventually, after some time, he found the life of the New York theater to be shallow and pointless. So he decided to come home. On his way home, he had to stay in a hotel for the night. And as he stayed in the hotel, he heard something. Though the night was still, he could not sleep. In the next room, beyond the partition, he could hear sounds. Not very loud, footsteps coming and going, a board creaking, low voices, a groan or gasp. These did not disturb him unduly, not even the realization that a man might be dying. Death was commonplace in Adoniram's New England and might come to anyone at any age. What disturbed him was the thought that the man in the next room might not be prepared for death. But was he himself? A confusing coil of speculation unwound itself as he lay half-dreaming, half-waking, while the autumn chill stole down from the mountains and crept through every crack and cranny of the house. He wondered how he himself would face death. His father would welcome it as a door opening outward to immortal glory. So much his creed had done for him. But to Adoniram the son, the freethinker, the deist, the infidel, lying huddled under the covers, death was an exit, not an entrance. It was a door to an empty pit, to darkness, darker than night, at best to extinction, at worst, to what? On this matter, his philosophy was silent. It had no answer, but who knows? He had always been neat and well-groomed. His mother had taught him to be fastidious. He cared for his own person, but he must die. And the grave was a cold, dark place. His flesh crawled. Was the wet earth mold and motionless body, the slow dissolution of muscle and tendon, the slower crumbling of bone, the immense weight of soil? Was all this... Through the endless centuries? What of that part of Adoniram Judson he thought of as I? Did it go out like the flame of a candle? Or did it too stay in the ground with the flesh? There was terror in these fantastically unwinding ideas. But as they presented themselves, another part of himself jeered. Midnight fancies, that part said scornfully. What a skin-deep thing this free-thinking philosophy of Adoniram Judson, valedictorian, scholar, teacher, ambitious man must be. What would the classmates at Brown say to these terrors of the night who thought of him as bold and thought? Above all, what would Ames say? Ames, the clear-headed, skeptical, witty, talented. He imagined Jacob, Jacob Ames' laughter and felt shame. When Adoniram woke, the sun was streaming in the window. His apprehension had vanished with the darkness. He could hardly believe he had given in to such weakness. He dressed quickly and ran downstairs looking for the innkeeper. It was past time to have breakfast, pay his reckoning, saddle his horse, and be on his way. He found his host, asked for the bill, and perhaps noting the man somber-faced, asked casually whether the young man in the next room was better. He is dead, was the answer. Dead? Adoniram was taken aback. There was a heavy finality to the word. For an instant, some of his fear of the night made itself felt once more. 
Adoniram stammered out the few conventional phrases common to humanity when death takes someone nearby and asks the inevitable question, Do you know who he was? Oh, yes. Young man from the college in Providence. Name was Ames, Jacob Ames. The, the topic that I've been given this morning is the expansion of the church. I hope that your heart burns for the subject. I hope that you are obsessed about this subject. What I want to do this morning is make four applications from Scripture on how the church is to expand, and I'm going to illustrate with particular applications from Judson's life story. The expansion of the church is the topic, as I mentioned. The first point I'd like to make is the expansion of the church depends on the power of friendship. Now, you might be surprised to hear that application and not understand where it comes from. But think with me for a moment about the entire sweep of the scriptures. In the book of Genesis, we read that the world is plunged into sin and unspeakable abominations. If you have ever studied ancient history, you know how debauched the world was. The land was filled with violence and idolatry. We know that people were sacrificing their children to false gods and caught up in horrible sexual immorality. In the midst of such deplorable, vile sin, God uses friendship as the way to rescue the world. He looks down and finds Abram, or Abraham, the friend of God, and makes a covenant with Abraham that will form the backbone of the entire Old Testament. God used friendship to begin Israel. To understand how God wants us to advance the church in our age, to win the lost in our age, we need to look to Jesus, of course. Jesus shows us how he won the lost. It says in Matthew 11:19, as well as Luke chapter 7, verse 34, that Jesus was called, quote, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There's that word again, a friend. He dared to eat with sinners and form relationships with them. If you think about that, this is not a very efficient strategy to advance the church. It would have been much easier for Jesus and the apostles to hand out tracts in busy places. But friendship instead was the instrument by which Jesus chose to win the lost. I have nothing against tracts. But historically, the gospel and the church have advanced organically through friendships and relationships far more effectively than using impersonal means. Often we hear these huge stories about big numbers of, of baptisms and lots of dramatic, exciting stories. I often worry about the effect of those stories because all that we simply need to do is follow in Jesus' model. Don't worry about the big numbers. Let's just think about maybe one person. And if you want to win the lost, are we having such a person over to eat? Are we going over into their homes to eat? Are we building a friendship? Jesus famously told his disciples near the end of his life, in John chapter 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Isn't that interesting? He says, I'm transitioning from calling you servants to now friends. And why? Because I'm going to disclose secrets to you. When I was in college, my senior year, I remember very well, at sometime around 7.30 or 8 o'clock, almost every evening, someone would knock at my door, and I would open the door, and he would come in. He's a good friend. His name is Daniel. And Daniel would come in and say, hi, how are you? 
And I was always a little bit annoyed because I always had a lot of homework to do. I always had many projects on my plate. And the fact that he came with no agenda, no homework assignment, he just came to, to chat, it annoyed me. But he would come very faithfully pretty much every night for about a month. Well, then once he didn't come, and I felt this longing. I thought, wow, where is he? I need to talk to him. And after a while, I started going over to his house, to his dorm, I should say. And next thing you know, every single day, very faithful, we would be spending hours together. Even though I grew up in a very well-adjusted, solid Christian home, I didn't know what friendship was. I didn't know what it was to befriend a person. I actually think that many people in today's world don't have friends, and they don't even know what real friendships are like. One of the best parts about Kingdom Fellowship Weekend is the opportunity to make friendships and renew old ones. That's something that the devil actually hates. My whole understanding of friendship changed when I read one quote. I'll read you this quote. I've slightly modified it to make it a little bit more clear. This, this completely changed the way that I thought about friendship and how I see friendship in the Bible. Here's what the quote says. In each group of friends... There is a sectional public opinion which fortifies its members against the public opinion of the community in general. Each, therefore, is a pocket of potential resistance. People who have real friends are less easy to manage or get at, harder for good authorities to correct or for bad authorities to corrupt. Hence, if our masters, by force or by technology or by unobtrusively making privacy and unplanned leisure impossible, ever succeed in producing a world where all are companions and none are friends, they will have removed certain dangers and will also have taken from us what is almost certainly our strongest safeguard against complete servitude. Have you ever thought about friendship like that? It's a, it's a little pocket of resistance in which the members of the friendship are fortifying one another with their opinions in a way that's different from the broader community. It's a very powerful thought. Now, in Judson's case that we just read, he had a little group of friends at, at Brown, very brilliant friends, and it was that group's opinions that he picked up. And those opinions led him to embrace deism despite their Christian upbringing. Now, friendship can have a good side as well. Jesus models that for us, obviously. Have you thought about friendship as being the divinely ordained mechanism to keep people true to their convictions or to bring people to new convictions? I hadn't. This concept changed my whole way of thinking. One of my, my main concerns about the modern social media phenomenon is that relationships have become more and more shallow, even though they've become more and more numerous. People are connected to so many people simultaneously that I feared that these good pockets of resistance... Good pockets of separation have become harder and harder to do. Regarding the subject of friendship, let's not forget that one of the most powerful ways that God advances his church is simply through our children. We should ask ourselves, are our children our friends? Have we cultivated a friendship with them? Clayton Shank a few days ago had a great line in his workshop that I won't forget. He said this, Whoever laughs with your children has their hearts. Isn't that tremendous? Whoever laughs with your children has their hearts. And it made me think, am I laughing with my, my children? Am I, am I a friend to, to my children? I was sitting in, in the pew with, we have a, a two-year-old daughter and, and four boys, and my, my daughter looked up, and you can see there's all these stains on this cloth above the, the auditorium here. And she looked up and said, Daddy, look, see all the animals. And she, with her child's imagination, saw all these animals up there. 
And at first I said, oh, that's, that's, that's nice, and I was, I was tempted not to do anything. But then I thought, you know what, I'm going to be her friend, and I'm going to say, oh, look, I see an elephant. I see a sheep. I see a, I see a bear. And it became, it became a way for us to build our little friendship. So friendship through, uh, through relationships with non-believers, through our friends, becomes one of the main ways that we see God rescue the world and Jesus ultimately try to win the lost. Point number two, the expansion of the church is fueled by extraordinary prayer and mobilizes Christians. So Judson, after this very dramatic experience he had where immediately adjacent to his room was Jacob Ames, the man who had led him astray, died a few feet from where he was sleeping. He went on to rededicate his life to the Lord and ended up connecting with a new group of graduates from Williams College. Williams College is in eastern Massachusetts. These were very on-fire, solid uh, people. They were very solid friends. They came from the, the famous Haystack prayer meeting. I hope some of you have studied that Haystack prayer meeting. If you haven't, I would commend that to you. This was the beginning of the whole missions movement in America. We read last night about, uh, we saw last night about the Moravians and the birth of a very powerful missions movement in, in Moravia. But this is what happened here, indigenous to America. This Haystack prayer movement was started by a group of teenagers, interestingly enough. The whole modern missions movement that sprung from America began with teenagers. Nearly every, if not every, movement of God throughout history has been fueled and sparked by extraordinary prayer. For good reasons, we often remember the hardships of those serving in foreign lands. I'm glad that we do. But we don't get a free pass to avoid that struggle. Our struggle, our agony, ought to come through prayer and fasting. Do you know what it is to meaningfully struggle, to meaningfully pray, to meaningfully fast? I loved what um, Brother Alan Ross shared about his experience doing fasting and prayer in Nicaragua. I was so convicted by that, and I thought, wow, I am not fasting like that. So with Judson, this new circle of friends came together with the blessing of God that they had achieved through prayer, and they started to dream big, very big. They eventually decided that the main problem in America was that the Christians were too clustered in America, and they needed to get out and go to the ends of the world to share the gospel with the lost. One of the things that in the New Testament it says, it says that all things were written for our instructions. In Genesis, when we read the command given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, I hope you realize that is also given to us. Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28 is simply his modification, his, his instantiation of that commandment. When... Where Adam has failed, where the first Adam has failed, the last Adam will succeed. The last Adam, of course, is Jesus himself, and we are his children. He bids us to fill the earth and bring embassies and visible communities of the kingdom of God on this earth. I hope you understand the continuity of the first commission to Adam in Genesis with the great commission of the last Adam found in Matthew. The verse that I was given for this subject, I was given two. One of them is from Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, where it says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Jesus, in this parable, tells us how the kingdom is supposed to spread. If you've worked with leaven or you've worked with yeast, I'm no expert baker, but I've done a little bit. It inexorably works its way through the dough. You can't keep yeast in one part of the dough. It will spread. Just with time, it will naturally find its way through the matrix of the dough. 
In fact, the analogy actually works far better than Jesus' listeners even understood. So as a interesting historic accident, scientists happened to choose this organism, leaven or baker's yeast. The scientific name is actually Saccharomyces cerevisiae. That's the genus and the species. They chose Saccharomyces cerevisiae as the model organism to study eukaryotes. So if you remember from your, your biology, there's eukaryotes and prokaryotes. Prokaryotes are bacteria. Eukaryotes are cells that have organelles like nuclei and mitochondria. And, and so when I, I'm a scientist, and, and when I was in graduate school, I spent about four years working almost every day with baker's yeast, with Saccharomyces cerevisiae. I had a great job. And the night when I would get ready to go home, I would get these little flasks and I would put up this little liquid solution of, uh, of they call it media, that the yeast are supposed to grow in. And I would put a little culture of the yeast in. And I would go home and I would let it culture overnight. And I would come in in the morning and I would pull the flasks out. And guess what each of the flasks would smell like? Can you take a wild guess what it would smell like? Bread. And so I had this, this smell of freshly baked bread every day when I would come into the lab and remove my, my flask. It was a great job. I love, I love the smell of, of freshly baked bread. Having spent years studying this organism, this Saccharomyces cerevisiae, or baker's yeast, let me tell you a couple of interesting facts about it that fit Jesus' parable even better than you probably thought. When you study the organism, it turns out that God amazingly designed it, that it has a set of genes in it that are sensors, And what these sensors do is they're always measuring how big the cell is. They're measuring the volume and the diameter of the cell. Once it hits this limit, these same sensors send a signal to the nucleus of the cell to divide. They say, we're too big, it's time to divide. There's a whole group of genes that have this function. It's called size sensing. I wish that our churches had a similar mechanism. In fact, a yeast that does not have this mechanism intact, you know what happens? It gets so big and it just explodes. The the culture can't live. It won't even populate a small flask. Staying below a certain size and reproducing is essential to the life of the baker's yeast. Second interesting fact about Saccharomyces cerevisiae, it grows better in slightly acidic environments. If you put it in neutral pH, pH 7, it hardly grows at all. In fact, it barely grows. Sometimes, I would say, we forget that Christians grow best when we are challenged in acidic, difficult environments. If we are in a neutral environment, so to speak, a pH 7 environment where there's there's no acid to challenge us, we don't grow. Third thing, when conditions are very harsh for the for the baker's yeast, like heat, or low nutrients, the yeast does a very interesting thing. It turns into a spore, and it forms this spore where there's a little sac that it develops, and the, the cell will divide all of a sudden, and it will keep these, these spore elements in this sac. But this sac of spores is far more robust and far more hardy than it was before. It can tolerate very harsh conditions. And in this congregation of yeast, if you will, if I can call it a congregation of yeast, they, they keep each other alive in this, in this difficult state, and they're ready to be transported. Spores are very easily carried from one place to another. So it makes the yeast tougher, and they stick together. So I hope you see how, again, I'm sure the listeners of Jesus, they wouldn't have understood all these things, but how powerful this illustration actually is. Jesus designed his kingdom to spread like leaven. If there is a part of the dough that doesn't have yeast in it, it is supposed to quickly spread. I hope when you look at a map, 
the first thing you, you think about when you see a map is where has the leaven not attained? When you look at a map of the world, maybe in your, in your office or wherever you go, our human nature is to want to stay in one place. Our human nature is to do exactly what they did at the Tower of Babel. It's to come together, pull ourselves together, do the opposite of what Genesis 1, uh, what God told humanity in Genesis 1, was to spread out, and then a curse falls upon us. It's hard. It's hard to do this. It's hard because we naturally want to preserve relationships and, and keep uh, very good times and good people. It's hard because it requires sacrifice and reconfiguration and tears. But all this serves an important function. It reminds us that we are sojourners and pilgrims on this earth. This earth is not our home. Do you feel that? Do you feel that this earth is not our home? Or do you feel like this is home? When people look at your life, do they, do they see you as a sojourner and as, as a pilgrim? The third point I want to bring up about the expansion of the church is that the expansion of the church is not flashy, but it's steady and unstoppable, riding on the back of the truth of the kingdom. The expansion of the church is not flashy, but it's steady and unstoppable, riding the back of the truth of the kingdom. The other passage that I was given associated with this topic is from Mark chapter 4. I'll read it. Please listen. It says, Jesus talking, he says, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Why did Jesus tell us this parable about the mustard seed? Well, the first most obvious thing is that he's trying to tell us that little tiny, very small seeds can produce something very large. Those of you who were at the workshop that I gave earlier, I spent a lot of time on this showing that when you looked at the population's uh, sizes of Christians in places like Corinth and Rome, even by the time Paul wrote the letter to Romans, the population of the Christian population in Rome was somewhere around 100 to 300 people. And that was, uh, that was in a city of, of about a million people. Corinth had a population, a number, sorry, had a number of Christians of around 60 to 100 people. Uh, very, very small groups that these were, despite apostolic miracles, despite all the blessings that they have. And we need to remember that Sometimes we are deceived and, and caught up into, into movements that highlight numbers more than what the apostles cared about. Paul said very clearly to, to the Romans, your obedience is known to all. He didn't say your, your growth is known to all, your numbers are known to all, your, your flash is known to all, your obedience is known to all. They were much more content to have small, strong embassies of the kingdom. I used to have a little bookmark that had mustard seeds glued on it. I love that bookmark. I think I lost it. I don't know what happened to it. But it was a great reminder for me of how tiny these little seeds are. I don't know if you've seen them before. But these seeds are, in fact, actually seeds. If you put them in the ground, they will grow. Steadily, without flash, without without glamour, they will grow. I have to get uh, be honest and say that I am nervous about groups that grow too quickly. Usually these gro- groups that grow very quickly tend to implode very quickly. They tend to ride on human charm and cleverness, not on the transforming power of God. So let's consider this parable a bit more deeply. Why did Jesus choose the mustard seed? Why did he choose mustard in general? I was reading a, an, a very interesting passage from a man whose name is Pliny the Elder. I don't know how many of you know the name Pliny the Elder. He was a first century pagan writer. And he writes about all kinds of topics. And he happened to be writing about the mustard 
plant, the mustard bush, the mustard seed. And this is, this is what he said. First century quote on mustard. Quote from a pagan. Mustard is extremely beneficial for the health. It grows entirely wild, though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, when it has been sown once, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it, as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. I was amazed. I, I almost felt like I was reading Caiaphas there prophesy about things that he didn't know what he was talking about. Did you notice that? It's an entirely wild plant. That's the first thing he said. Christians, we're not supposed to be museum pieces growing in nice little, nice little uh, controlled gardens. We're supposed to be growing in the wild. He said it was improved by being transplanted. Again, fits perfectly. We're sojourners, pilgrims. We're not supposed to do well in just in one place. And then he says at the end, when it has been, once it has been sowed, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it, as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. Beautiful picture. You, you, you can't you can't extract Christians once they've once they've been in a, in a land in a city. That's that's a that's a beautiful thought. Another element I like about this parable is the element of it being like a tree. And different gospel accounts call it the mustard. Uh, plant a tree, some call it a bush. I'm actually not sure if I've ever seen a mustard tree or a mustard bush. If I have, I don't recall. But there's something about trees which I find absolutely fascinating. Where I live, uh, I live about five miles north of downtown Boston, and just up the street, about 100 yards away, there's a park, and this park has a sidewalk right next to it. And the sidewalk is lined with trees, but the roots of these trees have just shattered and pierced the sidewalk all throughout the length of the sidewalk. It makes it very difficult to walk on. I'm not sure what kind of trees those are. I think they're actually oak trees. But if you were to look at the sidewalk when it were first put down with the freshly laid down cement and held up a little acorn next to it, you would have said, no way. This acorn has no chance. This acorn is tiny compared to the sidewalk. I could crush this acorn by putting it on the sidewalk and just stepping on it. But embedded in the power of that acorn... Sorry, but embedded in the acorn is the power to split rocks. Though it falls from the tree in weakness, that acorn, when it falls into good soil and receives the sun and the water from heaven, it gains an unstoppable, steady power to shatter thick slabs of stone. There's a beautiful picture of the church, a beautiful picture of what Jesus is telling us here about this mustard seed. It's slow, it's steady, but it's unstoppable. I like, um, I like this this quote which I heard a while ago, someone once said, today's mighty oak is just yesterday's nut that held its ground. Isn't that great? What ultimately makes God's kingdom unstoppable? Well, in fact, it is the truth behind it. It is the truth that Jesus sits right now at the right hand of the Father and that all authority has been given to him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that his words are true, that his commands are for us? Back to Judson. After much travail and hardship, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip one of my favorite stories about Judson. Maybe I can tell it another time. He, he actually had to go to England to try to garner more support from a missionary society in England that was more well-developed because of, of Carey's, William Carey's work there. And on the way to England, his, his ship was actually captured by a French pirate ship. And there's an incredible story about the capture and how he was released. I'll, I'll save that for another time. But eventually he got sufficient support and he decided with a lot of prayers to go to Burma, today called Myanmar. This is obviously all the way across the world from Massachusetts. 
he became married. He married a woman named Anne Hazeltine. Her, her nickname was Nancy. He usually called her Nancy. And so Anne and Nancy got on a boat with another couple that they were intending to plant a new church in Burma and, and Myanmar. But on the boat, I mentioned he was a great Greek scholar. And on the boat, he started to read the New Testament in Greek. And he was reading it, and he became very troubled because he was raised a Congregationalist. Congregationalists, you know, you hopefully know they practice infant baptism. And as he was reading the Greek New Testament, he became troubled because he started to believe that New Testament actually taught believers baptism, not infant baptism. But here he is on the boat being just sent off by his congregational church on the way to, to Burma. They were going to stop first in India. What in the world are they going to do? They go, they meet William Carey, who at the time was already fairly well established in India, and he keeps studying this issue out, and it's burning in him. And eventually he says, he capitulates and says, I just, I can't escape this. It is true that the Bible teaches believers baptism, not infant baptism. They very quickly realize that this conviction is going to put them in a whole lot of hot water because they've just been sent by a congregational uh, group to go plant a church. And if they start doing believers baptism, they're, they're not, they're not going to be in, in line with that uh, denomination's teachings. But, he, he chooses as he does, and he and his wife, Nancy, they ask for baptism from William Carey's ministry, and uh, they were baptized there, and he left the congregational denomination. Nancy was petrified at the thought of leaving that denomination. They thought She thought it would be very ungrateful and very unloyal to do that. But because they believed that the scriptures taught a truth, they both agreed that what had to be done, and so they left at great personal cost. Their whole mission was thrown into a into a disarray before it really even began. I admire him. I admire anybody who follows the truth despite great personal cost. One of my great concerns about nearly every church group that I've ever visited is that there's a recalcitrance to change, even when we see God's word teach differently. There are ultimately only two types of people in the world. The first kind are those who tremble at God's word, and the second are those who don't. That's all, that's all that matters. Do you tremble at God's word or do you not? Some people, those who tremble, they, they obey quickly. Those who don't, they rationalize, they sit around, and they make excuses. Unfortunately, most church groups don't tremble at God's word. They don't tremble at his truth, even though they profess to love God. Same thing with individuals. I've seen so often stony hearts that are bound to human traditions, even when it contradicts God's word. Yesterday, we had a great discussion on unity. I, I was blessed to have that discussion and to have a lot of other discussion afterward. And I appreciated, most of all, the very first question that someone asked. The very first question that, the, that was asked by Brother Ron was, is biblical unity possible, or is this just a pipe dream? And, of course, it's the biblical unity that doesn't compromise on truth. It's not ecumenical teaching. And all of us on the, on the panel, we all said yes in different ways. Now, I once learned a quote that helped me tremendously in my walk. If you haven't heard this quote, it'll help you as well. The line was this, you are just as holy as you want to be. I don't know if you've heard that before. If you haven't, memorize that. Learn it. You are just as holy as you want to be. There is nothing hindering you right now, right at this moment, from being as absolutely holy as you want to be. The only thing that hinders you is your own recalcitrance, your own sin. Now, here's, a, here's maybe a corollary to that. We, as conservative Anabaptists, as kingdom Christians, whatever term we want to use, we are just as united as we want to be. We can have nice talks, we can have nice panels, 
But what matters far more to me is what actually happens. If we truly wanted it, it would happen. But if there's no effort put forth, if we just sit around and smile and look at ourselves, nothing is going to happen. I want to see what happens from now to next year's Kingdom Fellowship. We need to be careful that we don't actually load ourselves up with guilt for having these nice discussions and doing nothing about it. May the Lord help us for that. Are we hearers and doers of God's word? I love the the Anabaptist people. I love Kingdom Christians. In my mind, they are the closest group to the truth of God's word. I have chosen to to throw my lot in with all of you, and I I love you all dearly. And Hopefully you know that I love you dearly, and then that comes through. I I never want to be perceived as a person who is throwing stones or, or coming from any kind of position of superiority. But I, and I, so I say this knowing, hopefully, hopefully you all know how much I love you, but I, I, let me say this, that so often I see such similar hard-heartedness in Anabaptist circles that I saw for years in the Protestant churches, and it scares me. I would have all these discussions in Protestant groups about, you name the, the subject, and people would even say, yeah, that kind of seems right, it seems true, but you know what, I'm not really sure that we're going to do it. And for me, when you get a person to agree on what it says in God's word and they say, yeah, that seems nice, that seems like it's plausible and it's probably true, but I'm just kind of keep doing the things that I'm doing because that's just what I'm doing. And that scares me a lot. I, I've had so many conversations with that and with Protestants about, about jewelry, about non-resistance, about divorce and remarriage, and people just don't step out in, in action. Are we guilty of that? Yes, we may be close to the truth. But close isn't good enough. I want to press in further. I want to press in all the way. I want to press in close and not miss anything that the scriptures would have for us. We, we do have biblical truth regarding non-resistance and separation, but there's a lot more in the Bible than just that. So Judson was the, this man who, who responded in truth. And I want to challenge us to, to press in. I want us to, to consider different things that we've learned in different conversations, different meetings that maybe not even might not have happened this weekend and ask, are there things that are in my conscience? Are there things that are, are lingering there and I haven't pressed in? But do you know what? Do you know that following the truth will always cost you? The lovers of truth always pay a price. The first price, often the hardest price that we have to pay is the esteem of men. What do you choose this day? I have five children, as I mentioned. I have four boys and a girl. My oldest three boys and my daughter, we've been reading Judson's biography at night for some time. We actually named our, our youngest son, his middle name is Judson, because I, I admire him so much. We, we decided, we knew that he was born very close to our, our house, in, um, uh, right there near Boston. And I knew his house was about three miles away where he was born. And I found a picture of his house. I can't remember where I found it now, but I found a picture of his house, and we knew the general area. There was no street address, so we decided to drive over to that area and to walk around to see if we could find this house. I had read somewhere that it was it was actually the oldest building in this particular city or community, which is a suburb of Boston called Malden. And um, because we didn't have an address, we started walking around and, and looking for this this picture of the house, which was about this small. I couldn't tell if I could recognize it or not. But eventually we, we came across a place that vaguely seemed to match it, but I started to second-guess myself because the place was completely run down. It was so dilapidated. The yard was a mess. The paint was peeling. The windows were all shabby. There were those ugly TV satellites all over the outside. You've seen those before. I wasn't sure if this was it. It didn't seem like it. There was no plaque, no sign, nothing. My, in my mind, I thought, surely the birthplace of America's first missionary, there would at least be a plaque or some little tiny thing. 
Well, eventually, an older man came out in the front yard, and I called out and I said, hey, is, is this house that you're standing in, is this the house where Adoniram Judson was born? He answered, yeah, it is. He said, but I don't know anything else about it. That's, that's all that I know. I, I live here, and I don't know anything about the history. You're welcome to stand where you are on the sidewalk and, and look at the house. I, um, I thought to myself, this is Boston. If you know Boston, it's a city that loves history. It's very proud of its history. It puts up plaques everywhere and monuments for every little historic event especially relating to the American Revolution. But here, for this man, there was nothing. Just an unmarked, shabby little house like 99.9% of all the houses in Boston. If it were a movie star or some famous singer or some famous patriot, there would be something. There would be a monument, there would be a plaque, but there was nothing. Now, if you want to see God's true church expand and are hoping to receive the acclamations and the applause of men, I have bad news for you. But... If you want to hear the acclamations and the deafening roar of the cloud of witnesses, I have good news for you. We need to respond to all of God's truth. We need to not hold back. We need to stay faithful to obey Jesus and imitate the apostles just as they imitated Christ. I'd like to take you now through the last story that I have for Judson's life. This is nowhere near the end of his actual life, so again, maybe at another Kingdom Fellowship we can continue his his story. It's one of the most amazing lives ever lived, I think. But Adoniram and his wife Anne eventually made it over to Burma, and there they had their first child. His name was Roger. Roger was a very sweet little baby. I'll read you how, how it was described. The baby seemed to show an unusual desire to be with his parents. Sometimes, when they went by his cradle without picking him up, he would follow us with his eyes to the door. When they would fill with tears and his countenance so expressive of grief, though perfectly silent, that would force us back to him, which would cause his little heart to be as joyful as it had been before it was sorrowful. Just picture this little baby with these big eyes. He doesn't cry. He was this very special little boy. Big, beautiful eyes who would, who would cry or look very sorrowful there. I love that picture. Those of you who, have, who are parents or have been with babies a lot, you can probably picture that with me. It moves me. One morning then, Nancy lifted Roger from his cradle, and he was taken with a fit of coughing, which lasted half an hour. Within an hour or so, he had developed a high fever. Both Nancy and Adoniram were alarmed. But when the fever abated the next day, they decided the attack had passed. They were mistaken. The following morning, a Thursday, the cough and fever returned, worse than before. Something in his throat seemed to be choking him. His heavy breathing seemed to be heard all over the house. In all Rangoon, the only person who knew, who knew anything about medicine was a Portuguese priest. They sent for him at once, but all he could give the baby was a little rhubarb and gascoin powder, neither of which relieved the cough or the difficulty in breathing. All through the night and the next day, Roger continued the same while Nancy sat up, anguish in her heart holding him. But the second night, about two in the morning, exhaustion overcame her and Adoniram, sick as he was, took the baby. The little creature drank his milk with as much eagerness, and Mr. Judson thought he was was refreshed and would go to sleep. He laid him in his cradle. He slept with ease for half an hour when his breath stopped without a struggle and he was gone. In that climate, funerals could not be delayed. On the far side of the garden, a circle of mango trees surrounded a little bamboo hut where Nancy was in the habit of writing letters home. 
Within the enclosure of trees, a grave was dug beside the hut that very day, the 4th of May. And there, in that afternoon, Roger was buried, while Adoniram and Nancy numbly watched in the company of 40 or 50 Burmese and Portuguese acquaintances who tried to console them. His death and internment occurred almost before they could feel grief. But in the next few days, as they put away the little evidences of a short life, the cradle, his clothing, the few toys, until the only tangible reminders were his absence and the fresh grave in the mango circle, their hearts began to bleed. This brings us to our last and final point about the expansion of the church. Point number four is that the expansion of the church demands our lives. The kingdom ways to achieve life through death. It is the great paradox of the kingdom. It is the great paradox that Jesus taught and lived and died for. Adoniram Judson, in some sense, gave the life of his son for the goal of saving the Burmese people. God the Father, of course, gave the life of his son to save us. Who among us would give our own lives, the lives of our children, for the sake of Jesus' kingdom? My brothers, my sisters, I see before my eyes a whole army of fellow citizens of the king who could make disciples, plant churches, and fulfill the gospel in this land within short order. Right in this very room, there's just one question. Do we want it? Someone once said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. The clock is ticking. Do we remain idle? Last night we heard a quote in that, in that documentary where uh, I think it was Ravenhill said that we have the resources to evangelize the world in one generation if we so choose, but there is a price to pay. When Jesus calls a person, he bids that person come and die. Do we heed that call or do we choose material possessions, jobs, earthly comforts, and worldly pleasures? Especially if you are a young person, I hope and I pray that you will choose to die for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. Come and die with me. Amen.